Hello and welcome to This Climate Business, the podcast about turning the climate crisis into opportunity. Please follow us on social media and rate the podcast as it helps others to find us. I hope you enjoy the show. Simon Coley is the co-founder of All Good Organics, the pioneering importer of ethical bananas and also of Karma Drinks, famous for its Karma Cola and my favourite, Gingerella. In fact, we're drinking one now, aren't we, Simon? We are. Karma uh, just celebrated 10 years, a notable achievement for any brand, but especially noteworthy because at least 1%, maybe even more, uh, of total revenues goes back to the Karma Foundation, which funds health and development in Boma. Boma, yes, a it's village in Sierra Leone. Sierra Leone. Uh, the source of the Karma Cola Nut. All good bananas are also highly ethical in what's known as a very dirty business. And uh, you recently added all good oat milks, which are very good, by the way. We did a um, on the feed, which is another media business I'm involved in, ranked yeah. uh, n- number two in our um, in That's our good. coffee uh, for flat whites. Yeah. A, a close rival, right? With all with boring. Anyway. Um, so many good things. Mm. Simon, thanks for joining me on This Climate Business. It's great to see you again. Pleasure to be here. Thanks, Vincent. Good to you, see you too. You've been away. You've been away for two years. Yes. Yeah. Well, been back for two years. Been back for just on two years from a stint in the UK with Karma Drinks. Right. And my entire family, small family. Uh, we're going to hear about some of your adventures in a minute. But just clarify something for me. There are two companies here, Karma Drinks and yes. All Good Organics. But... It's very confusing because you run out of the same groovy garage in Williamson Ave. Ab, yes. And all the shareholders seem to be the same. <laughs> it's, it's Are they two different, different companies? Now. They're deliberately yeah. different, but they started from the same place. So the purpose is pretty much the same across both of those organisations. We started um, thinking we could uh, rectify a problem in the Pacific around um, revenue from... Uh, locally grown produce in Samoa to kind of offset remittance money that was coming from people that didn't have jobs in Samoa and had to come and work in New Zealand thinking it might be possible for us as three white middle class (laughs) men living, you know, uh, being altruistic that we might be able to kind of rectify that. So we... because was when? This is 15 years ago now. Okay. So we had, Chris had been in touch with uh, an outfit in Samoa called Woman in Business. This is Chris Morrison, yeah. who has been on the show, by yeah. the way. Yeah, and Chris is an organics pioneer. Um, he was there surfing, saw so much produce, tropical fruit, not making it to market, literally lying on the ground, and thought there must be a market for this. And one thing led to another, and we were importing bananas from Samoa, hmm. which wasn't smart. I mean, we... We learned a lot in a short time, enough to know that we should probably import bananas from a different place <laughs> that were easier to get to market and probably looked better and were more likely to be sold. But we were able to make good of that relationship and sell the bananas we were harvesting from small family garden farms in mm. Samoa as dried bananas here. And, you know, we managed to... Chris had, had a, uh, has a strong relationship with the Fair Trade Foundation and we were able to access bananas from Ecuador, and we still do sell a few containers of them a week. Bananas are a difficult business and notoriously caught up in a multinational, starting with the letter D, uh, and many others, I suppose, that are in that space. But um, There's a reason those countries are called banana republics, because most of the revenue that helped 
the government's rule in Ecuador, uh, Guatemala, Colombia, Peru had huge contracts with international fruit companies because bananas were such a, a kind of coveted resource. They're like, you know, you could imagine coming across one of these many years ago and not having that many choices of fruit to eat and having this wonderful marshmallowy thing you could eat mm. became a popular mm. kind of staple quite quickly. And there were railway lines that ran all the way up from Central America to the US run by these big fruit companies. So they had a lot of a kind of stranglehold over the politics of these places and they land banked a lot of land that prevented a lot of indigenous people from growing their own food. Is the business still notorious for its use of pesticides and herbicides, which have caused quite a few health effects? The, the, the kind of defining feature of large banana exporting companies is massive plantations. To get the sort of scale, to get the prices that they kind of demand, having commoditized the product, labour, use of land, and kind of the ethics around that are kind of, if you if, if it's not the country that you're taxed in or live in, you don't really have the same lot, lot of responsibility. So mm. the multinationals really do drive a pretty hard bargain for mm. some of those indigenous people. So if you go to Ecuador and visit one of these large banana plantations, you'll see bananas growing literally for rows that are more than 10 kilometres long. And they spray them every couple of weeks because they're a monoculture. You know, the, you, you know, with that kind of production and only one plant, they're very susceptible to fungus and other sorts of pests and diseases. Mm. So the way they prevent that is with industrial-scale spraying. Mm. And that's not great for people that live in the area, nor is it good for the, for the rest of the, the biodiversity of these places. And mm. remember, these are on the edge of the Andean rainforests, like mm. the Amazon. So a lot of that land has been claimed for these sorts of agricultural endeavours. Yeah. Um, the difference between that and these small family-owned farms is night, night and day. Mm. And because of that, we see a huge kind of benefit in supporting these small these communities of small farms because they're more biodiverse. The land is owned by the people producing them. In fact, the, we met the um, Minister of Agriculture in Ecuador and he was using the, the model of the El Guabo Association of Small Banana Farmers, who we work with, as a way of bringing change through example to the rest of the industry. Huh, yeah. And they're the biggest exporters of bananas. In What's the, world. the price differential that you need to get in New Zealand to justify the fair trade? For, for us, banana? it's been about a dollar a bunch. Like, in order to have care of product, really good service, high-quality shipping, because you need to make sure... For the quality that, if you're going to sell something like we do that is kind of, is organically grown, uh, you know, it pays good wages, has fair trade certification, there's a cost for that. And it's been about a dollar for us. But it's worth it because what we try and do is make sure the, the product's actually a higher quality. Because <laughs> if you're going to pay a bit more, you really want to experience that in the fruit. So... <clears throat> I mean, you know, it seems such a minuscule amount of money, you know, when you when you understand exactly. the context. Yeah. But what's been the reality for you in a retail context? Well, the thing about bananas is that they're like a price signal in a supermarket. The reason they became kind of highly contentious is because 
It used to be, and it probably still is in a lot of places, when you walk into a supermarket, the first thing you see is the fruit bins. Mm. And, and possibly one of the first things you'll see is a bunch of bananas, and you'll see a price on that. And when you see that price, you get a sense of what everything else is going to cost. Huh. So in the UK, where this became a big deal, where that the, the pressure on those prices really affected these growers in, hmm. in these tropical regions, a woman called um, Harriet Lamb, who I think you might have met when, when she I, came here. When she came here, yes, yeah. yeah, she was an amazing woman, led an incredible yeah. campaign to expose all the ill yeah. treatment, right? Absolutely. And she wrote a book called Fighting the Banana Wars because she'd been to these communities and seen the damage that this kind of practice had yeah. caused, like, you know, children being born with, you know, congenital deformities because yeah. of these sprays. So, you know, she'd had a horrible experience and really worked hard to make that change and set up this fair trade regime of kind of quality control for both labour practice and mm. environmental impact. Uh, and that's been the thing we've used as our sort of benchmark ever since. Yeah, well, you're still there. Every time I go to Pack and Save, there's a lovely yeah. bunch of bananas that um, I buy. Uh, but what's been the experience kind of from a commercial point of view? Is it a sustainable operation? It is there. I mean, we've, like I said, you know, we learnt a lot from the first few bunches we managed to get from Samar. Uh, the, you know, the thing is that these these sort of businesses are vertically integrated and we only occupy a small slice of that whole supply chain, but we have great partners. So we work with an outfit called AgriFair out of Rotterdam who are kind of the benchmark for fair trading commercially right. of fruit from these yep. areas. So they help with our quality control, with the relationships, negotiating with growers. They're kind of the good guys that do all of that heavy lifting, yeah. sort of logistics and shipping and and uh, and agricultural practice really well. So we couldn't do it without them. Then we have uh, ripeners here like Turners and Growers that help us with importing, make sure that we ripen to the right quality mm-hmm. and help with distribution. And then we've got great retail partners like Foodstuffs who've been with us all that along that journey all the way. And uh, after we started kind of knocking on one supermarket door after another, trying to convince produce managers to stock them probably 14 years ago now, you know, we've gradually been able to convince people that it's worth that little bit more. And now there's there's a pretty good kind of army of fans that buy them. I mean, it's great for me to hear from people saying, oh, we bought your bananas. And yeah. it happens more and more often. It's yeah, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah. That's lovely. That's lovely. Yeah. Uh, I remember um, Neil Finn saying that when he pulled up to the lights and people were singing Don't Dream It's Over, he knew he made it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's undeniably. Yeah. yeah. There's a lovely um, uh, statement here by um, the chairman of the Karma Foundation. Uh, Albert. Albert. Yeah. Albert. Uh, Tucker. Tucker, yeah, who um, is just a remarkable fact, and we're skipping to Karma drinks now, but mm. he says that cola nuts are no longer used in any of the big-name cola drinks artificial colours are used. I did not know that. I mean, it's kind of obvious, I suppose, now that it's been pointed out. But And he points out that, you know, the, the communities that have, Pioneer where the cola nuts have come from, yeah. have not enjoyed the upside of, was, it's of cola industry. What we learned from the banana business was that you can take on a pretty big uh, market with a different story and a different supply chain basically, you know, a way of showing that we have an authentic ingredient that people are looked after all the way back to production, Mm. to growing and when Harriet was over, because Chris had 
Chris Morrison had set up Phoenix Organics and we were kind of thinking it might be time to do another drink. And we asked Harriet if she knew where we could get some cola from and she introduced us to Albert, which was a real, you know, kind of wonderful because he's such an incredible man and mm. has given us access mm. to this culture that we would otherwise never have even got close to. But he um, was quite surprised when we first got in touch with him and then thought about it a bit and managed to find this group of people in the Gola Rainforest in Sierra Leone who could access cola nut for us. And as we did the research, we discovered that, that it's not really a, a, an ingredient in any of the colas that you can drink anymore because it's been synthesised out of the recipe. Yeah. And, you know, that's the way you scale things, is mm. to do stuff in laboratories. <laughs> but if you're going to call something cola, we thought you should probably put some cola in it. Uh, well, keep going. So what what happened next? You know, you, did you go to – I know you've been to Sierra. Yeah, yeah. You know, and it's a country that's – you know, famous for its civil wars and brutality. And it's the word association with Sierra Leone is not optimistic, yeah. <laughs> but it has got a lot better. So, from you know, blood diamonds, civil war, child soldiers, to an incredibly fecund, you know, agricultural community, mm. amazing rainforest, beautiful people. Like the side we saw of it, having braced myself the first time I went for all of this kind of despair, mm. was mm. the total opposite. Yeah, sure. But, well, you know, to wind back a bit, we we did a lot of the first kind of negotiating with, or just dealing with the problem of getting the stuff to New Zealand on the internet and over the phone with Albert. And, you know, again, one thing led to another and we ended up with five kilograms of cola that he had managed to get posted to us, <laughs> which was awesome because now we know you've got to have a lot more um, uh, paperwork to get uh, plant material into the country. And ours had slipped through. Five the, kgs managed to slip through. It came to the office in a courier pack, which was great because yeah. we were able to use it to come up with some recipes. Mm. What does a cola nut look like? It looks a bit like a chestnut. But that, but if, if you imagine a big pod, like a cocoa pod, a bit bigger, you break it open and inside of these is this sort of fist of nuts of maybe half a dozen smaller seeds, they're seeds, and they look like a kind of reddish chestnut. And if you split them open, they have a sort of a white pith on the outside. If you take that off and split them open, mm. the coal is the centre of that, the meat of the seed. Yeah. And it, if you eat it, and it's still a tradition to split cola in friendship and in greeting and a whole lot of other rituals in the local communities there, if you split it and chew on it, it's so bitter. <laughs> You don't need much of it to flavour anything. Uh -huh. Yeah. But it's also a stimulant. So, so it's it, like a, a cocoa bean. Yeah, it's a, like a large cacao bean, but it's got, and it has theobromin like coffee and cacao has, cocoa has, and caffeine, and those are stimulants, and they encourage conversation and yeah. friendship. Fantastic. So they, and there is a saying there that um, we learned when we first went that they say he who brings cola brings life. <laughs> Sounds a lot like a jingle we had too. It, it, it sounds a lot like the um, the other cola, doesn't it? Um, the result of this um, Karma Foundation is pretty good. This in your annual um, report or the, the latest impact report. I've just run through the list: um, yep. seven bridges, uh, one hundred and fifty-five bursaries to girls, uh, four schools, educating over seven hundred students, mm. eight teachers trained and funded, on and on. Community. 
Oh, they'd be berries. Berries, berries. They're like yeah. meeting houses, like foray, right. uh, pars. Three rice milks, yeah. three seed banks, and so on. It's fantastic list, and that's only off one percent. Well, it's probably. I mean, if you think about all of the revenue that we redistribute as, you know, beneficial beyond the, you know, tax and profit and everything that we've got to pay to be in business, sure. it's probably closer to two. But it's uh, the the thing is, it doesn't sound like a lot, but when you when you spend it in the way we do, it goes a long way. Mm-hmm. So that doesn't really account for the amount of time we spend in contact with the village, especially Albert, because. The way we've sort of set up this DIY NGO, we didn't really know what we were doing when we started. Fortunately, Albert knew a lot more than we did. Is he Sierra Leone in himself? He is. He was born there. He, as a young teenager, he moved to the UK. His father, um, Prince Albert Tucker, the same name, I think, had uh, written the constitution of Sierra Leone. He was a very kind of established and well-respected lawyer. And the president at the time thought he would be a, a good, even-handed person to try and draft this very complicated constitution across many, many different kind of political factions and mm. tribes. And he managed mm-hmm. to. But, but as a reward for that, he was kind of exiled. <laughs> um, and, and I think, I don't, I'm not sure of all the detail, but Albert then left Sierra Leone and, and was educated in the UK and stayed with his father. But he's back there all the time and in fact in November he'll be back with the villagers again and he's in constant communication with them so we have a person a couple of people we employ there that, and, and the, the intention was not to tell anyone what we thought they should do mm. so the, the, the first thing we kind of the question we asked ourselves was if we're going to do this and we're going to call ourselves karma we better be clear about how we think that money we send back be spent without directing it because mm. what do we know so hands, uh, there's another person who's been incredibly helpful in this journey, a, a man called Hans-Peter Müller, who's a German uh, aid worker who works with a German equivalent of like an Oxfam called Weltunker Health over there. Uh-huh. And he said, look, this community are probably the one you want to work with because they've already a bit organised. They've got a group, this commu- committee of eight people representing eight villages in the edge of the rain, Gola rainforest where the cola comes from. And they'll be able to make decisions about what to do. Mm-hmm. So we thought that's great. We don't have to put any re- you know any mandate yeah. around. We just say you tell yeah. us what you need, and we'll help you do it. And we we need to make some judgment about what you speed it on because obviously it's got to be for the benefit of the entire community and not individuals. We don't want to be writing a check to the chief and not seeing everyone else benefit from it. So we somehow need to manage that. Mm-hmm. And that list you've just read out is testament to that system working mm-hmm. because mm-hmm. they've come to us with. You know, the first request was, we can't send. We we can we see lots of the oldest boys going to school, but not many girls. So families need that support. So we said, well, that's great. We'll just provide scholarships so they can go. Yeah, and you can apply to them, and that's been pretty successful. We must. And it's have not sent, because the school costs anything, but it's the loss of income to the family. It's a bit of both. Can. Some of it is is just um, pride, like having uniforms. People don't like going to school without them. <laughs> they like to be able to. So that's the thing we do. We make sure they all feel like they've got they got access to those sorts of yeah straightforward things like the right clothes to wear to school actually makes a difference. Amazing the the, the little things. Yeah. So so 
schools like the one at Sabima where we, you know, we've built a few new classrooms. I've spent time there with them and they are all so proud of their of their classes, of their classrooms and mm. each other. Mm. It's, a, it's, it's interesting. It's kind of, mm. it seems like a bygone era to me as a parent mm. in, you know, in the suburbs we live in here. But it's incredibly communal. And the parents, one of the things we've been trying to do is make sure that we're not the only funder of these endeavours so that the parents and the education, the government part of the education department, also have some skin in the game. Mm. So if we weren't to be there, it would continue. And there's things like maintaining schools and working bees and things that we're encouraging by not being the only funder. Mm. But it, it's so far so good. Yeah, because mm. I mean that's kind of probably a good time for me to ask that question. I was thinking about legacy, and uh, you know it, you're not dead yet. You're here <laughs> in the studio. Thanks, um, How do you create an organisation that is beyond? you and Chris and Matt, uh, because you're still highly involved, but actually you need an engine, right? You need a machine that eventually is going to be an organisation, not not a... Well, we've just encountered something that's really going to test this, and that in the last day um, we found out that Chief Hindua Kamira, who was the, the champion of All Good in the Village, died two nights ago. Ah, he's on your website. Yeah. Yeah. It's He'd been a- really sick. He's been unwell and not had a lot of energy for the last month, but mm. he um, he took ill a night or so ago. Yeah, I'm sorry to hear that. Yeah, it's sad news because he's been, you know, he, he's like an example of how resilient people can be faced with the kind of adversity he's had to deal with and a real lesson. But seeing him in action and the people he's guided and mentored gives me a lot of faith in another generation of people taking on that mm-hmm. mantle. And already there are a few individuals that are stepping up. Yeah. So I think in terms of the structure of things like the foundation on the ground there, we've set up enough of a kind of way of behaving between our two cultures with managing the funds and seeing outcomes that I believe is sustainable. And mm. it's always been something at the back of our minds, like if we disappear, what happens? Do we have a dependency that becomes a problem because people like for education? Mm. One of the things we do is not buy books because <laughs> that should really be funded by something more sustainable uh-huh. like yep. the education department. But if, it, if we can make some infrastructure or get a teacher a salary, that's good because that benefits lots of people, not mm. just one. Mm. So it's kind of figuring out where to put the resource to mm. make the would most you, sustainable change. Would you ever um, address... I don't know, the shareholding of the companies to make it more of a cooperative? It would be, I mean, a great outcome would be ownership all the way down that supply chain. Mm. But it's it's one of the problems of working in a kind of capitalist environment (laughs) is the idea of, you know, we have a lot of shareholders here in New Zealand um, who've been very generous and we don't return massive dividends to anyone. We're surviving, we're profitable, but we're not a tech unicorn. You know, we haven't got a 10 times revenue multiplier. We're, not you about know, to. We might in terms of brand. But I was hoping to be invited to the Coley yacht. <laughs> exactly. That's right. I think if I was flying a helicopter here, something would have gone wrong. <laughs> <laughs> but, um, we, uh, you know, we, we're not without needing to make profit. It's just that we have three, you know, we have a triple bottom line problem, right? So the great thing about a company that's solely focused on returning um, 
dividends to shareholders is that that's all they have to do. And anything else goes through that lens. What makes the most money? We go, okay, we've got to be profitable, otherwise we don't have a business. But we also have to be conscious of the social impact of what we do Hmm. and the environmental impact of what we do. And that really complicates the profitable side of it Mm -hmm. because we've got to spend more on ingredients, we've got to do a whole bunch of things that we can't... That, To be fair, most of the brands we compete with don't have to do. But that's what gives us our strength. (laughs) So it's, it's a difficult balance. And I think the ideal outcome would be a broader shareholding of people benefiting because they're actually participating in the transfer, transformation of goods, like you know, taking pro- growing as farmers do and making the the money at the other end mm. of the supply chain from mm. selling it at a higher and leveraging that relationship. We haven't figured out how to do that. It is a nice idea, but I think we're the way we're structured things. We can we know that there's a you know, we can call ourselves karma because we know they're getting something back from it. Mm. Will they benefit from a longer-term kind of increase in value? Not sure, but that's something we have to kind of address as we grow because that's how the thing becomes truly commercially sustainable. What was your own motivation with starting? I think when I met you all those years ago, you were a designer? Wasn't yeah, you? I, that's... Well, you were doing that, at least, among, yeah, amongst well, other I things? Yeah, well, I still do. I mean, I, I think my, it, you know, a good day for me is still doing some design work. I, I get a kick out of that. Mm. So, but it's it's probably more about designing systems than it is products anymore, if that makes sense. Like being able to set these things up so they are enduring. Mm. Um, but, yeah, that's I sort of came to it thinking... And from a product development point of view, how could we make this sort of ultimate soft drink? Mm. You know, what would it be if it, these things aren't that useful to anyone? No one needs a soft drink. Yeah. You know, the ones that sell at such enormous quantities are only driving that one layer of, of good. And that profit. interests you, does it? Like, is that kind of the... What interests me is being able to change that model. Right. That you go, mm. if, if the largest... One of the most well-known brands in the world can generate, what is it, 60% of their revenue they get to keep right? <laughs> because they're so massive. Yeah, that's and what they produce is pretty basic. Well, it's sugar and water, right? It's mm. like, you know, there's, not, there's a lot of magic in why we buy this stuff, but mm. not a lot in the manufacturing. Mm. So how do you flip that? How do you go, if people were going to drink this stuff, because we do, you know, the stat we know at the moment is, is 1.8 to 2 billion soft drinks from one big brand consumed every day. It's a shitload of liquid. Mm. And it's being shipped places, and that company own water <laughs> rights. They own supply chains for sugar from all sorts of ingredients, manufacturing, packaging, shipping, all that stuff. It's an enormous amount of revenue, wealth, you know, value tied up in Mm. In one behaviour, and like is that just refreshing yourself? The, the, How do you make that work for the benefit of everyone? Right. A little bit jealous of that was the, like a, if, if if karma became <laughs> no. that, would that be a good thing? Well, I don't know. I don't think it ever could, but I think proving that it's possible, like scales, a real problem, right? Because the system we work with means that you've to be able to do that, you really you've got to be manufacturing stuff that's really cheap. Yeah. <laughs> so everyone can have it. Right, yeah, yeah. So mm. it's like the bananas. You know, we go, 
we're probably not going to be the cheapest banana ever unless the entire system changes mm. and everyone expects to pay this amount for one. Because otherwise the competition is always going to be, I will cut out all of that extra cost in order to be the cheaper banana. Sure. And it's hard, in, a, in a capitalist environment, you can't really change that, right? Unless, of course, the externalities are, are costed, costed in. Absolutely. But that, I think that's the truth of it, that if you can make everything a level playing field, if social good is considered in the price of a consumer purchase and, not, and mandated, not just a by permission or, or voluntarily, mm. then something changes. What is your family? What does Jody make of this vendor you've gone on <laughs> creating? You know what? The great yeah. thing that was just happened is that um, Jody and I have these heated conversations about. So when you know what's going to happen to these businesses that you started? <laughs> and a couple of weeks ago, I said, "Well, why don't you go on the board of one of them? Because you're really good at marketing." And uh, she said, yes, I'll do that. So she's now a director of All Good, which is great because it brings a whole set of skills because she's a very competent um, mm. marketing and brand development person and has a lot more international export experience because she's worked at places like Fonterra. She's worked for large retailers in the US, in the UK. So she brings a whole new perspective to it that I think will help since now we're doing a lot more export with that business. So... Uh, she now has to deal with some of the complexity of, of <laughs> yeah. being responsible yeah, as a director of one of the businesses. Yeah. <laughs> what does this colleague got to do? <laughs> That's right. Yeah, she'll um, find out now. I have to ask you a climate question because this is yep. a podcast about climate. So, um, you know, we need to make a leap. Um, there must be a climate impact from being Absolutely. a business. Yep. Or not, is there? Uh, well, everything has a climate impact these days. Hmm. The, the challenge is measurement. For us, we know that we have a bunch of different external audits we use to make our claims. Fair trade, organic certification. Now we're, we will become a B Corp with Karma Drinks and there's a big chunk of that work is us measuring our hmm. use of energy, all the other resources and what their, their sort of carbon hmm. metrics are. So... You know, every behaviour or action as a business is going to have some carbon output, and it is the most important number to be counting now. So, what we, you know, what we do, what we're trying to do in, in Sierra Leone is, although carbon sinks aren't all the answer, we know that if we can protect wilderness, especially around the rainforest, there, we'll prevent it from being used for other things mm. like palm oil plantations, mm. which are another terrible monoculture and have a high carbon impact, I believe, because they require deforestation. Right. So what we're trying to do with the villages there, and they've sort of requested this along the, the, our ethos of making sure it's something they want to do, we're going to, and we've started this right now, is make a, a sustainable reforestation program that will employ local people hmm. to plant. Some of that might be productive, non-timber-related um, products from the rainforest, which would be great because, you know, we don't harvest all that much coal and there are a lot of other, there's a lot of other types of produce that could come out of there that would mm -hmm. be beneficial. We're already, Albert's been taking bush pepper and some amazing chilies and things that we know we can get from that area. Hmm. And, and it's not hard to export them to Europe from there because there's quite good shipping routes when they're up and running. Mm -hmm. So 
those things are all possible. Um, having uh, an ETS certified program would be great. So we're looking at how that might work out of Africa. Because mm. again, if we can start measuring and managing the impact of this work from a bunch of different reasons, you know, revenue for the villages, reducing carbon or you know, reducing our footprint mm. to zero, it'll make it net positive through mm. that would be good. And because we have so many partners that are interested in the same thing, we can bring them in. If we've got an ETS scheme, then they can use that as well. So I mean, the dream outcome in some ways is being paid to leave it alone. Well, the thing about what we're harvesting is that best if the, the rainforest is is wild harvest. Right. <laughs> so, you know, part of it is making sure it grows because a lot of it's, you know, been reclaimed for other sorts yeah, of agriculture. Yeah, yeah. But, yes, I think um, the thing about this community is you need something productive. You can't I th- or either that or build more, create more forest. Right. <laughs> so that there's more input than that, you know, in terms yeah. of labour. Hmm. Um, but that's looking pretty good. I think we've, you know, we've, we've, our oat milk at the moment, well, very soon will be manufactured in New Zealand. So those sorts of things are helping too. So across all the businesses, we're kind of conscious of this. And the ultimate is to be, you know, climate positive. Yeah, yeah. In a short time. What else is coming down the line? What other products can we see coming out of the Something of that's all? pretty exciting in the UK is, is a pivot that being our new um, CEO has made in terms of managing channels for distribution. Mm-hmm. Um, we've started working with a, a food, a, what do you call it, a, a food rest, a restaurant um, called Leon, who are like fast casual dining restaurant, healthy fast food out of the UK, and they've um, got Karma drinks on their post pours, so you can get it poured out at like a beer bowser oh, yeah. from the counter, which solves a big packaging problem. Yeah, fantastic. Reduces the amount of carbon we're using mm. and gives us access to a different channel for distribution mm. because there aren't really any ethical soft drinks being sold in that format. Right. So we're looking at expanding that. So get delivered in a keg? A bag and box. So they, they have... They have their own um, carbonation, and we provide syrups, and mm. they've got systems that, that put all that together. Yeah. But it's something that's funny because it came out of, I remember talking to Sam Chapman down at the Sherwood in Queenstown saying, could you do it for us? Because we don't want to have to deal with the glass behind the bar. You know, most bar- bartenders don't really want to have to open bottles and close them, but they've yeah. been very conscious of sustainability in their operation and wanted to be able to do this to take all that away yeah. so that their f- footprint was smaller. And, you know, as a combination of that thinking and seeing that opportunity, we think that's probably fantastic. quite a bit of opportunity. Reminds yeah. me a bit of um, Cleanery and um, Mark, yeah. Mark and Ellie Sorensen yeah. are going to be on the show in a couple of weeks. They're... Um, have taken detergent and yes. turned it into a powder and a sachet. Yeah. Uh, and the shipping saving is just phenomenal in one container. Well, I saw products like Athik being launched in Holland and Barrett, which is big high street health and beauty stores, um, really take off because they weren't packaged in plastic. Yeah. So consumers are totally aware of this yeah, yeah. and want, mm. you know, good options, you know, quality alternatives. Yeah. Uh, well, it feels like the world's sort of moving into your lane in some ways. I hope so. <laughs> that would be good. <laughs> that would be good. For all of our sakes, yeah. yeah. No, well, it does feel like we're in the right place in terms of, you know, having 
we've worked pretty hard in the last decade or so to kind of see yeah. if this thing would work, and yeah. it's working. Mm. We've got a long way to go, but, mm. yeah. Mm. Well, it's been great talking to you, Simon. Um, Simon Coley from, where do you say you're from? Karma Drinks and All Good? I never answered that first question. Right. No, right. <laughs> so the difference is all good make, import and sell bananas and oat milk, and they're a separate company that Chris and Matt and I run and own. And when Karma Drinks got bigger and we saw an opportunity to sell them in the UK, we separated them so that we could get some investment into that side of the business. Right. So they're two very separate businesses. Right. But we still have shareholdings in both. Excellent. Well, it's been delightful talking to you. All the best. Um, where can we buy? We can buy them anywhere. You can buy, we? well, people keep saying, I see them everywhere. So that's good. Um, you know, it's nice to hear that, like you're saying, you know, hearing your song being played on the radio in yeah. the car next door at the lights. But uh, foodstuffs now have them um, in all the new worlds and pack and saves. But any good cafe. Yep. Yeah. Good stuff. Thanks for being on the show. Thanks very much, Vincent. Thanks for listening to This Climate Business. If you like the show, please rate us as it helps others to find us. Ka kiti anō. 